Um, We're moving through the book of Acts these days, and so we come to chapter 14. And one of the things that I always do in preparing for a message is I, is I read through the passage, do some thinking about it, jot some notes, try to think, okay, what is this about? What do I want to say? And then I'll do some reading about it, and I'll often listen to a sermon or two that somebody else has preached, just because I think one of the ways to learn of the scripture is to learn from the community, and in my case, a community of other preachers. What have they thought? What have they said? And uh, this week, I just want to point out near the beginning that I'm very much indebted to an Anglican preacher named David Short, whom I admire a great deal, for drawing my attention to a phrase that totally recolored how I looked at this chapter. Um, in Acts, and I'll tell you what that phrase is in a second, but in Acts 13 and 14, we have Paul and Barnabas on what we have come to know as Paul's first missionary journey. The beginning of chapter 13, the church in Antioch has heard the Spirit call them to send Paul and Barnabas out. They have gone to the island of Cyprus. They've done a ministry tour there. They had a spiritual encounter with the Jewish sorcerer Elimas. Then they sailed to the mainland, landing on the north side of the Mediterranean, a place called Perga. Uh, There, Mark leaves them and goes home. They move on to another city called Antioch. There, Paul preaches a sermon. A large number of people come to faith, but a whole ton of persecution is stirred up against them as well, and eventually they're forced out of the city. Now in chapter 14, they go to the towns of Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and then they return through those cities and make their way eventually back to Antioch where they first began, where they were first commissioned for this ministry trip. And Antioch being the sending church, Paul and Barnabas, after about a two-year journey away, now report what has happened on this ministry tour. And when they come back, verse 27 of chapter 14, when they arrived and gathered the church in Antioch together, they declared all that God had done with them, and, here's the phrase, and how he, God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. How God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That is, from Paul and Barnabas' perspective, what God had been doing with them and through them for these whole two years in various cities, traveling hundreds of miles, what God had been doing was opening a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now the question then is, how does God do that? How does God open a door of faith? And it's a good question for us to ask because we, to the extent that we are enamored with God, obedient to Christ, surrendered to the gospel, to the extent that we are those things, we then desire God to open a door of faith to the co-workers, to the neighbors, to this neighborhood. Maybe to open a door of faith within the heart of somebody. We want God to do a transforming work in the world, and we want to be a part of it. We want to see God open a door of faith. So how does he do that? Well, when we think of God opening a door, we usually think of God making it easy 
removing the barriers. I didn't know if I should take this job or not, but God just seemed to open the doors, just made it easy and obvious that I should go this direction. Should I go quit my job and become a missionary in Africa? Well, God opened the doors. It was very clear that I should do that because the barriers were removed. And sometimes God, sometimes God does that. Sometimes his opening the doors means it's very clear barriers are being removed and we need to go this direction. But when God opens a door of faith to someone or to some group of people, it will often, it will usually mean that God is not removing the barriers, but that barriers are being overcome. That God is not making the way easy, but he's helping you to move down that way. I think the road of Christian mission and sometimes Christian living is an uphill road. When God opens a door, when God is going to do something great, it's often very, very hard. And in Acts 13 and 14, that is exactly what we see. Again, chapter 13, there is a, a spiritual encounter with Elimas, the Jewish sorcerer, and it's only when Paul, empowered by the Spirit, speaks forcefully a word of judgment against the sorcerer that the kingdom comes and the governor of the island is saved. Then when they leave from there and sail to the mainland, their helper, John Mark, leaves. Then they go to the city of Antioch, and Paul preaches a stunning sermon. Everyone's all enamored with it. A lot of people come to faith, so much, in fact, that it riles up the opponents of the gospel who stir up persecution to the point where Paul and Barnabas get forced out of the city. Uh, that doesn't sound like the removing of barriers to me. It doesn't sound like a road being made easy. Could it get any harder? Well, as it turns out, it can and does get harder. Chapter 14. They've left Pisidian Antioch after a time of ministry there. They're going to the city of Iconium, about 100 kilometers away. They entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way, we read, that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And I've said this many, many times, going to say it again, and probably will say it several more times as we get through the book of Acts, but I just have to draw our attention to it. What do they do in Iconium? They enter the synagogue and they spoke. They spoke. Verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. Verse 7, after they flee the city of Iconium, they go to Derbe and the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 9, the cripple was listening to Paul speaking. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city. Verse 25, when they had spoken the word in Perga. This ministry trip of Paul and Barnabas is a preaching tour. They are speaking the good news about Jesus Christ to the Jews in the synagogues and to the Gentiles in the city. So they come to Iconium, and they preach so powerfully that many, many people believe, Jews and Gentiles, 
But there are unbelieving Jews, literally the word is disobedient Jews, verse 2, who stir up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds, poisoned the minds of the people of the city against the brothers. Now, not just Paul and Barnabas, but against those who are coming to faith through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Now, what should Paul and Barnabas do? Once they're in a city and the whole city is being stirred against them, they should think, shouldn't they, God is closing a door. God is not at work here. We should go somewhere where God is more obviously at work. Join, find out what God is doing and join him in it. God has clearly closed the door because the minds of the city is poisoned against the brothers. It's not what they do. Verse 3, so because of the persecution, they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. And as they do that, what do we see the Lord doing? Speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. This is not the first time we've seen this in Acts either. Acts chapter 4, in the context of persecution, the apostles gather together and pray Lord, you know the threat of violence that hangs over our heads. Here's what we want you to do. Enable us to speak then with greater boldness while you stretch out your hands and glorify your servant Jesus by performing signs and wonders in his name. The apostles preach. Paul and Barnabas speak boldly. God bears witness to their words by performing signs and wonders in their midst. And so the kingdom moves forward. So the door is being opened. But the same thing happens in Iconium as happened in Antioch in chapter thir- the end of chapter 13. Um, the city becomes increasingly polarized. People are coming to faith all over the place. The Jews and the leading Gentiles of the city are getting angrier, angrier, more and more hostile until there's a very clear demarcation. You are either for Jesus or you are not. And the city is divided. And things get so hot that eventually an attempt, a plot is being formed against the lives of Paul and Barnabas to mistreat them and to stone them. And when they learn of it, this time they flee, they leave. There is a time in the face of persecution to stand And to boldly proclaim, there is a time to recognize that a dead missionary is not a helpful missionary, and it is time to go. And so they they leave, and they move on to the cities of Lystra and Derbe, cities in an area called Lyconia, and they preach in the surrounding country. So there they spend a lot of time too, and in, in all of this part of their ministry, Luke now chooses one episode And God sees fit to include it in the word. Do you ever wonder that, by the way, as you're reading the scripture? Why is this here? Of all the stuff that was going on, why did God ordain to include this text? I often ask that when I'm reading the scripture. Paul and Barnabas preaching in two different cities and in the surrounding region, and there is one, one episode that gets included from that whole period of time. 
And it's to that episode that we turn our attention now. Verse 8. In the city of Lystra, there is a man who is sitting there who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Threefold description there, just to highlight this man's helpless condition. He wasn't just lame. He could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. Luke is emphasizing something here. And he is listening to Paul speaking. And Paul somehow, we don't know, probably a stirring of the spirit within, we assume, but Paul somehow sees this man and recognizing that God is working in his life in such a way that he has the faith to be healed. And in the New Testament, in the Greek language, the word for healed and the word saved, the same word is used for both. That there is a a spiritual healing and a physical healing that often happen together. And when, God, when, when Paul sees the Spirit granting the gift of faith to this cripple who could not, has never walked, Paul recognizes the Spirit stirring and saving this man. And Paul says to him, stand up, get up, upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Paul's preaching God is doing a sign and a wonder so that the people will know that what Paul is saying about Jesus and the gospel and the good news of being saved is true. And so God saves, heals this man as a picture of the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel does. It takes people who are crippled I run. I've run half marathons. They're hard. But I was crippled. I was morally crippled. I could not stand on my feet before God. I could not walk down any kind of path of goodness. I was lame and had been from birth. And the gospel saves. The gospel enables me to stand before God, as we've sung this morning, and to walk, to walk to walk the road that God has laid out for us in Christ. That's what the gospel does. It saves, it saves, it heals. And the crowd that's there know immediately what has happened. They know that God has acted, but they don't know who God is. And so what they do is they get all excited and say, verse 11, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men or in human form. And they have a spontaneous religious festival. The priest of Zeus, whose temple is right outside the city gates, organizes a crowd of people and they start this religious festival. But they're speaking in their native dialect. So Paul doesn't understand it. Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on until they see the priest coming with wreaths ready to offer sacrifices to them. And they call Barnabas Zeus, the chief god. They call Paul Hermes, because he was a chief speaker. Hermes was the messenger of the gods. Um, They sound very pious. But there was a legend at that time, and the Latin writer Ovid had actually set it down in writing about 50 years before this happened, of in this town, in this area, of the gods, Zeus and Hermes, coming, visiting the town in human form, looking for hospitality. And after being rejected in a thousand homes, they come to the 
the humble home of an elderly couple who receive them and give them food and a place to stay. And the gods take the couple out to their front door, show them to town, and destroy the town for their lack of hospitality, and then turn this elderly couple's home into uh, a temple for their own worship. That was a, a local story, a local legend of the city of Lystra. And so they want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so when they think the gods have come back to them now in human form, they're not going to make the same mistake twice. They're going to honor them and have this festival. And as soon as Paul and Barnabas realize what is going on, they tear their clothes, which is a Jewish um, expression of horror, at specifically against blasphemy, calling us gods, how horrible. And they rush into the crowds and try to stop them. And Paul preaches to them, not from the Old Testament in this case, but from nature. He says, no, we are not gods, but there is a God who sends the rain and takes care and exercises providence, shows you his goodness. And when the people realize that they've been, in their eyes, I guess, duped, Paul and Barnabas are not gods, they make a 180-degree turn and move from wanting to worship these guys to getting all angry to the point of stoning Paul and sending him or leaving him outside the city when they think he's dead. They drag him out and they leave him there. So from barely escaping stoning in the city of Iconium, now Paul actually gets stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. And the disciples, those who have gotten saved in the course of Paul and Barnabas' time in the area, gather around him, and surprise, he opens his eyes and stands up on his feet and walks back into the city. It's incredible courage. A miracle, I think. Was he dead? I don't know. Certainly very close to it, enough to fool everybody. But he rises up strong, enters the city, and then the next day goes on with Barnabas to the city of Derbe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is defending his apostleship. And he, he goes through a litany of all the things over the years that have happened to him. Three, uh, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And I think he's thinking back to Lystra. In the book of Galatians, Lystra was in Galatia, by the way, in the larger province of Galatia. Um, Paul writes to them at the end of his letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, sorry, from now on let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And I wonder if Paul is referring to this. You know while I was among you, you know what happened to me and I carry the scars to, to this day, two decades later, I still bear on my body the marks of the stoning in Galatia. It was a brutal act against the follower of Jesus Christ. Does that sound to you like God has opened a door 
of faith. Opened a door of ministry for Paul and Barnabas. They continue to preach in the next city. And then, this is astonishing. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. They were very close to Antioch, their city of origin, but instead they retraced their steps, went back to Lystra, where Paul had been stoned and left for dead. They went back to Iconium, when he had barely escaped being stoned, and then back to Pisidian Antioch, when they had been forcibly expelled from the city. Imagine the courage of these men going back to these places. Imagine the courage of the disciples that had been made there and whom Paul and Barnabas had left behind. What it might have looked like for them to live as a follower of Jesus in these places. Christians on mission have to be people of courage. They have to be people who can affirm in the midst of their mission that God is good. They have to be able to sing songs like we've had sung for us this morning. They have to be able to be still and just know that God is God. That's the kind of faith and the kind of courage that Paul and Barnabas demonstrate. It's the kind of courage, my goodness, that I want to have. It's the kind of courage that Christians all over the world live out and express every day. And when they return to those cities, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, what do they do in those cities? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, not just in faith, not being faithful, but in the faith. In the New Testament, the phrase the faith has to do with content, has to do with a body of doctrine. It has to do with being uh, continuing in um, in the truths that you have received. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has died for our sins. He has risen again. There is forgiveness only in him. Continue in these things. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you think that Paul and Barnabas knew what they were talking about when they told the followers of Jesus that they would enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Then they appointed elders in each church, fasted and prayed and committed them to the Lord. In the city of Lystra, we read at the beginning of chapter 16, in that area, there was a disciple who got made in this time period, probably, named Timothy. Timothy apparently observed what had happened to Paul. And when near the end of Paul's life, Paul is encouraging Timothy to be strong, to continue in the faith, to give leadership in a culture that was running counter to the gospel of Christ. By way of encouragement, Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, 
You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I wonder if we know that. Do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Do you desire to see people around you impacted by the gospel? Do you want to make the good choices that arise from being a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you want to live a life that pleases God? If you do, you will experience persecution. It will be hard. There is uh, a song... um, that I just came to know recently, a guy named Steve Taylor, who's a Christian songwriter in the 80s. God bless the 80s. Say it with me. God, no, just kidding. (laughs) He has a song, the title of which is, It's Harder to Believe Than Not To. It is harder to believe than not to. It is harder to be a follower of Jesus Christ in some ways than it is not to. And as we desire to lead a godly life, there will be opposition, the road will be uphill, there may be outright persecution. We can probably count on it. It's a hard road. And Paul and Barnabas Barnabas pass through Pisidia, go back to the coast, the city of Perga, speak the word there then down to the city of Italia, and then from there sail back home to Antioch where they departed on their trip maybe two years or so beforehand. Verse 26, they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Beginning of chapter 13, they're praying, the leaders in the church, and the Spirit says, set apart uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What was that work? When Paul got saved in Acts chapter 9, one of the words that was given to Paul through the the prophet um, Ananias, God said, I'm going to show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. Somehow the work, the life for which Paul had been set aside was a work of suffering, a life of suffering. And then commission from Antioch to the work to which the Spirit had called them, set them apart. Every step of the way, there was suffering, there was opposition, there was persecution, there was slander, There was disappointment when one of their own number left them. There were whole cities stirred up against them. Their life, their lives were threatened. And yet they continued. And they fulfilled the work that God had given to them. And at the end of it, when they called the believers together, 
they were able to declare all that God had done. Through them, the NIV says, the the word is with them. It's an unambiguous word. It means not what God had done with them, but what God and them had done. They had done it together. They speak, God acts in power, the world gets changed. They declared all that God had done with them and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. We want to see God open a door of faith. We believe as Christians that people all around us who are far from God are nevertheless loved by God and that God wants to see them drawn into, drawn to himself through Jesus Christ. And there is a door of faith that God wants to open. The people around here, people whom you know, people in your family, In the hearts of people, a door of faith that needs to be opened. Do you remember when Jesus talked about building his church? He talked about a door. He talked about a gate. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. In other words, I'm coming and the door is going to open. The door is going to open. There is persecution. The very realities and powers of hell are going to stand against what the church is trying to do. But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and the door is going to open. And we want to be with God as he does that. What can God do with us as we speak, declare, demonstrate the reality of the gospel and then have God show up and act with power and bring faith to people, bring people to faith. It's what we as a church exist to do, but I'm not sure that we realize how hard, how hard it has to be. Harder than we know. It'll be hard because we'll have to change the way that we think. It'll be hard because there's things that we'll have to do differently. And I'm not talking church customs or tradition or culture. I'm talking about living from different values, using my time differently, caring more about people than I do right now. It means a change within my own heart. Church customs and cultures, frankly, I don't care if there is a suit or not a suit. I don't care if there's music or not music. I don't care if there's pews or no no pews. Those aren't the kinds of things we have to do differently. What we have to do differently is love people, and that's hard. We have to love them the way that God loves them, and that's hard. We've got to let God know that our life is at his disposal, not at my own disposal, and that's hard. That is an uphill climb. But as we do that, God shows up with power. He acts, and the door of faith is opened. And at the end of the day, we have something to report. And disciples are filled with joy, as it says at the end of chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas surrendered it all for the sake of the gospel. It's what they were called to do. It's what we are called to do to surrender all things for the sake of the glory of Christ. And we're going to close our service this morning by singing that. I surrender all. Think about what we're singing. If in your heart you think, I can't surrender all, 
Sing it anyway. Sometimes by singing and committing to the ideal, that's the way that God moves us forward. If it's hard to surrender, nonetheless, let's sing, I surrender all and recognize that my life does not belong to myself. It belongs to him for him to do with as he sees fit. In order that faith may come, the kingdom be advanced, and the name of Jesus be glorified. And so we are happy to be able to walk uphill with God in our midst. Let me pray, and then we will sing. Lord, there is a work to which you have set us apart. And we live in the places that we live, and we are a church in the place that we are a church, not by accident, but because there is a work, not only for us to do, but a work that you want to do, and you want to do it with us. And so we remind ourselves today, I remind myself that my life is not my own, but it belongs to you. You've given it to me. You can take it back any time. Everything that I am and I have, everything that we as a church are and have, are at your disposal. Nothing is our own. So even though it's not ours to begin with, nevertheless, we surrender. And we're surrendering what isn't even ours. But we surrender it. And invite you, ask you, Lord, to glorify yourself and open doors of faith with us and through us, that Jesus Christ might be glorified. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing I Surrender All. I think it's 451.